In this episode of 92i Talks, Richard M. Cohen, the respected former CBS News producer, sits down with his wife, former Today Show host Meredith Vieira, and Dr. Oz to discuss life with multiple sclerosis and his new book, Chasing Hope, the account of his exploration into the cutting-edge world of stem cell research. The conversation was recorded on May 7th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So two friends that I care a lot about who have a wonderful story that I'm honored to be part of helping you here tonight. And there are so many things I could say to, to introduce them at a personal level, but I, I must say whenever they come on the show, which I've had you on three times, I guess now, right? Which is, for as Meredith can speak to, it's a daytime show, you try not to have your guests too frequently, but if they're really good and engaging and the audience resonates to them, you invite them back because their story has real meaning, which is of course what we're all looking for in an age of loneliness. And I was most struck when I learned that you actually met very young in life. And Richard, if I could ask a little bit about your first inclination that you had MS, which I always assumed you got later in life, and when we first met you, corrected that. And then, Meredith, you'll jump in anyway or interrupt. Oh, I'm uh, good at that. Yes, yes. and, uh, and I, I, I think folks ought to hear a little bit about how when you met and learned about MS, it influenced your decision to, to hang with this guy with the, with the big eyebrows. <laughs> well, I was 25 years old. Uh, fin finishing a public television project. And three things happened one day that just startled me a little bit. One was dropping a full coffee pot, one was falling off a curb, and the other was scratching my leg when I got back to my apartment on Capitol Hill, and it was numb. And I didn't think much of it, but uh, I happened to talk to my father that night, who was a physician, and we were talking about Nixon or something, and I, I casually told him what had happened. And um, he said, go see a doctor. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, about 10 minutes later, the phone rang, and it was my father again. And he said, I think you have multiple sclerosis. Mm. And I sort of looked at the telephone. You know, he was an old-fashioned doc. And, uh, who he, had MS? Who had MS, right? And didn't he didn't jump to conclusions, but he, he sure was right on this one. And the irony was the documentary that he was working on was about disabilities. Yeah, so, that's right. So talk what about was it. your father's specialty? He was a pediatric anesthesiologist, which doesn't sound like a fun job to me. <laughs> we help a lot of young people and their parents because yeah. all pediatricians have three patients, right, the, the child and both parents. So it's a more challenging task, especially right. when you're, your parents are putting a child in your arms. Yeah. Uh, Meredith, you, you, you met and I learned in the second date that he had a disability which you quickly learned could change your life together. Yeah, we were at Un, Deux, Trois in the theater district. And um, there was something about Richard. Richard was always a um, very funny guy, uh, sarcastic, um, great sense of humor, but there was some sadness to him. I always felt there was something about him that seemed sad, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I think I actually brought that up at the dinner, and then he proceeded to tell me that he had MS, his reasoning being that other people had fled when they were longer into the relationship with him, having found out that he had an illness, and he wanted to give me the chance to run while I could, essentially, <laughs> and, and save both of us uh, the pain of um, committing to each other and then having something and break us save up. the price of dessert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See what and, she's talking about? <laughs> Gallows humor. And I don't know. 
I think I've said this before. My dad was a GP, general practitioner, so the discussions about illness were um, always around our house. I mean, I was very comfortable with uh, topics about disease, and I'd heard of MS. I didn't know a lot about it, but I knew most more than probably most people did, and I just it it just didn't bother me. It really didn't. But, but I, I, why, why wouldn't it? It shouldn't it? I mean, it, you're you're. A young, vital woman. You meet a man that obviously has tremendous endearing, endearing qualities, but I would think you'd at least hiccup a little bit when you recognize that his life expectancy may not even be 71. Well, he's 70 now, so he's doing pretty damn good. Yeah. I said 71. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't explain it. Maybe it's because I really liked him. I really, really liked him, and I... I I always believe that in that, that saying, that you could get hit by a bus tomorrow, so none of us can predict our future. And he didn't present as somebody who was ill either, so maybe if he'd been walking with a walker or a cane, maybe, maybe I would have been a little right. taken I aback. Think that was, I really think that was the, um, the arrogance of youth. Yeah. I really think I projected, you know, I was on the escalator up at ABC News. I had just covered uh, Watergate and, um, I, I was invincible, you know, and I... He was covering wars and he was legally blind. I mean, that's pretty, but the yeah, I mean, that didn't came out, that, came, that came later. Yeah. But uh, I think I projected to you um, self-confidence. Totally. And, uh, and as close to normalcy as I can come. And not long after that, we went to um, his doctor, the doctor you were seeing then was in the Bronx, and on that particular day, the waiting room happened to be filled with young men, Richard's age, maybe a little bit older, I around the same age, Brown and they were all in, in really rough shape in wheelchairs. And rather than projecting that as Richard's future, I thought, you know, that some, there's always going to be somebody who's worse off than you are. So be grateful for what you have. So we were preparing to come out and speak with you, uh, talked about a month ago, and Richard felt that the appropriate title, although the book is up there, Chasing Hope, which we're going to get to in a second, it's, uh, he said, we have to cover the tyranny of chronic disease, a chronic illness. And you so beautifully understand a process that I can only pretend to grapple with because I take care of a lot of patients with chronic illness, but I don't have one myself. And I suspect you can shed light for me and a lot of members of the audience on that topic. Well, chronic illness, by definition, is uh, incurable. Um, it's a lifetime battle that you're going to fight. Um, and it, you don't necessarily look, look sick. Um, and people don't necessarily see you as sick. But my experience with chronic illness was that I began to lose things that I used to be able to do. You know, I lost enough vision that I couldn't drive anymore. You know, I lost enough uh, strength in my legs that I couldn't really jog. We used to jog. That was our thing, yeah. Up mountains in the summertime. And it's, it's stuff like that. You, your, de your definition of yourself just gets eroded away, and um, and there's nothing uh, nothing you can do about it. And, and something happens, I think, that we were talking about this earlier. When you're using a cane or a walker or a wheelchair, you become just an extension of it. You lose your your humanity. 
Um, we, we had this experience, experience today. today huh? Yeah, we were doing a TV interview and the people were lovely. And we were seated, Richard had the walker, and then one of the gentlemen who was uh, you know, on the set um, said to me, where does he want it? Well, Richard was standing right there. And it's like they look through the person and all they see is the disability. Yeah, I, I, and that we, happens a lot. That's we talk a lot. We talked earlier about, uh, I was saying I was in a, in a house of worship. I, I don't remember whether it was a bar mitzvah or a wedding or what. And Meredith's parking the car and I'm inside. And this woman who was clearly an usher is standing 10 feet, 15 feet from me. And she just looks at me and I'm standing there. She doesn't make a move toward me. Meredith comes into the room and she rushes up to Meredith and says, where does he want to sit? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's well-intentioned. I mean, I don't think these people, I don't think people realize they're doing it. I really don't think they realize but we, it, but. but we live in a culture that celebrates beauty and it celebrates physical perfection. And I really think people not intending to be malicious in any way uh, just don't see us, you know, or they avert their eyes. And it's very frustrating because we all want to be seen and heard. When we first moved to the suburbs, um, our, we have three kids, two boys and a girl, and our son Ben was... Uh, a baseball player, you know, Little League. And Richard would come to the games and had trouble walking and all of that. And we had not told anybody about the MS. And Richard decided he wanted that to be private. And finally, for some reason, it came out. I don't remember. I, fi I finally got a cane. Oh, okay. So the, the cane. And um, I said, oh, somebody asked me, um, what's with Richard? And I said, well, he has MS. And they said, oh, we just thought he was the town drunk. Because they would see him stumbling. Which happened to be and, true. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> this is all just a cover. Unrelated <laughs> observation. But it was so that this whole story had been created because nobody wanted to ask him, gee, Richard, we noticed you stumble a little bit. What, what, what's going on with the you? The cops? I would yeah. walk from, to the house from the train, and I'd be trudging up the hill, and I'd hear a car behind me, and I turned around. It was a police car. Yeah. And they used to follow me when I was out walking. Thinking you were drunk or yeah. I, unless they thought I was going to pull a heist or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've already laughed quite a bit for a tale as uh, seemingly sad as the one we're speaking of. And humor plays a big role in your relationship together. Uh, and I suspect it helps you cope. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, first of all, it, that was our relationship yeah. from the get-go. I mean... When I walked into the Chicago Bureau in 1983, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was in the Midwest Bureau based in Chicago for CBS News. Right, and we were bigfooting you, I believe. Yes, you and Leslie Stahl, you right. were carrying think, her bags, I think. I think they wanted the story to done, done right. Okay, go ahead, tell and, the story. What does is, what is bigfooting mean? <laughs> means they, they bring in a New York producer and a New York correspondent to tell the story because they don't feel that the people in the Bureau who are living the stories every day. But you can understand. Yes. You can understand. You can understand. <laughs> and it's called bigfooting? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right, and so you're bigfooting the story. Yeah, and, and, Mer in. and Meredith's inner office curled up on the couch. 
was her thumb in your mouth? No, it wasn't. But it, uh, she's watching Looney Tunes cartoons. Yes. And I made some reference to uh, hard-driving journalism or something, <laughs> I don't know. And that was sort of the beginning of our- Yeah, that I thought, in the moment I said, what a jerk, and I'm gonna marry this guy. I just knew, which I don't know what that says about me, but I just <laughs> knew that there, there was something about him. But what specifically, I, mean, I, I see the humor part and the boyish good looks, but <laughs> someone walks into your, your space, invading right. your space, bigfooting it. Uh, because I it? like a challenge and I liked the sarcasm. And I thought he was really attractive, and I don't know. How do you know? You, when you get hit with it, you get hit with it. So, uh, Richard, you, you you were quoting Hemingway earlier when we were talking about being uh, broken, or rather strong in all the broken places. Strong uh, at the broken places. Bro broken strong places. at the broken places. Right. right. Well, that was the name of my second book. Right. Um, but give the background, if you don't mind, to everybody. Of the quote. Oh, it was Hemingway. It was a farewell to arms. And, um, and as I said earlier, I thought it was a, a title in search of a book. Although um, I, I realized, as a matter of fact, the senator from Georgia, what was his name again? Yeah. Who lost all of his- Three limbs. Yeah. Cleland, I think. Yeah, Max Cleland. He, he wrote a book called Strong in the Broken Places. And uh, when my book was published, I, opened the mail, or came through my publisher, and it was Max Cleland's book. And he inscribed it, and he said, I'm proud of you. Hmm. And that my meant goodness. a lot. But this book was about, you profiled five people with chronic illness, right. and the line from Hemingway was, life breaks everyone. The world breaks everyone, and afterwards, some are strong at the broken place. And those five profiles were of people who really were strong. And I see that as a triple amputee who served yeah. this nation and was subsequently elected to public office. I didn't That's realize not. you wrote a note about it. But let's talk about what that means, the, the broader idea that when you break, and bones, interestingly, unlike any other structure that I'm aware of, heal perfectly normally if they're set the right way. That's not true for skin. If I incise the heart, it never quite heals the same way. We actually develop techniques to operate to avoid cutting into the heart for that reason. Human tissues form scars, but the bones don't. So I'm intrigued by that quote, and why'd you call your second book that? Well, I think that, um, I think that when you're sick, um, and it doesn't mean your body is broken, but when you're sick, I, I do think it toughens you. Uh, I do think that um, you become resilient and you really become a survivor. And um, because you're, you're at war with your body and you're also at war with a society that, that really doesn't want you to exist. I mean, that sounds a little paranoid, so let me rephrase that. Um, it, um, employers think twice before they ever hire somebody with a chronic illness. Now, I could argue, and I do argue, that people with chronic illnesses know that they have to prove themselves, you know? And we know that we have to go the extra mile. I mean, when I got hired by the Walter Cronkite Broadcast, 
Um, I didn't tell them for a year that I had MS. And I worked my butt off to prove to them that I could do it because I knew it was a matter of time before they found out. And I, I even did crazy stuff like go to Beirut and, and go to Salvador where you can't see where the bullets are coming from and people are shooting at you. Um, and it was probably a little bit irresponsible, but I think that's the kind of thing, maybe in a less dramatic way, that people with chronic illnesses think that they have to do. I certainly thought I had to do I it. I mean, he would cross the street in New York, this used to kill me, against traffic, just to prove he could do it. And I think it's almost <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm vibrant, I don't know what it and was. And I'm very mature. Yeah, very mature. <laughs> An idiot. So exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about the current book. By the way, you know, the, when you write a couple of New York Times bestsellers, you've got to keep track. And uh, this is a book that uh, I think we should all respect for a bunch of reasons. But I got to say, when you look at the the inscriptions, the title of the book, by the way, "Chasing Hope: A Patient's Deep Dive in the Stem Cells, Faith, and the Future." We're going to talk about all those things. But Doris Kearns, Amy Schumer. <laughs> And Romney and Charles Os Osgood write blurbs. I mean, that is as diverse a group of blurb writers <laughs> as you can get. To have a, a world-class biographer, a comedian, a, a political powerhouse, and one of the best journalists of our era all comment that they love the book is interesting. What, what is it about the book that attracts all those personalities to enjoy it? Um, that's a tough question. I mean... I think that it humanized um, the experience. Um, I think, I absolutely think that it explains stem cell therapy, when, which I think people don't really understand. I, I never, until I had it, I didn't have a clue what it was. And as we said earlier, when I went to the Vatican in 2013, Meredith and I went to this conference, I was blown away because this stuff was being done now. I mean, I was sort of thought it was a future sort of concept. And we were stunned to learn that uh, it was being used to, to grow organs in laboratories, but it was being used to fight diseases. And, and now, if you, if you or somebody in your family or your friends or your neighbors or anybody have any disease, I guarantee you, if you go online, you'll see that there are clinical trials already. And uh, I think people need to know about this stuff. So take us back to that. And Merlin, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. This Vatican conference, which actually the, I guess, two generations ago was the one you first attended. There was one that just was uh, held this, two weekends ago, and we were at it together. And it is held by the, and hosted at the Vatican in part to get people to talk at a level that sometimes we don't. And it has star power of having the Pope as the host, so, and, and you know, Meredith and you know, Sanjay Gupta and others as moderators, so it allows a lot of people who don't normally sit in the same room to stay in that same room. And instead of just giving the talk and running away, you're there for four days, so you make friendships with people you wouldn't normally become that close to. And you talk about stuff that is meaningful. So stem cells in particular are of interest. It came up again this year in a big way. But I should point out that we've done um, 
investigative pieces on stem cells. And most of the clinics around the country selling stem cell therapies, I think, are fraudulent. I say most, more than 50%, probably much more than 50%. But the legitimate ones are doing fantastic work that is often unheralded and forgotten. So if you don't mind, as, as, a, as a partnership, I'd love to, take, go, to go back to 2013, explain to us where it was then. Merritt, you can update us then. And also just a quick preamble. Can you just quickly explain what MS is to, to anyone in the audience who doesn't really know what it is? Well, MS is a neurodegenerative disease in which um, the myelin sheath, which is the insulation um, on motor and sensory nerves, is mysteriously sort of eaten away and it peels off. It's like, I always say, it's like an old-fashioned switchboard, you know, and if, if the insulation comes off, uh, the call sh short circuits. And that's what happens, you know, if, if you have lesions in your brain or your brain stem or even on your spine, um, it's, it's going to short circuit electrical impulses, you know, impulses, nerve impulses. And when, when Richard was 25 and diagnosed, the doctor said, there's nothing we can do for you. It was diagnose and adios, essentially. Uh -huh. So he had lived his life up until 2013 without any sense of hope. He has secondary progressive MS. There are different forms, and there's nothing that can be done for that particular form of MS. I tend to be um, a pretty hopeful person, and he didn't wallow in his hopelessness, but it was clear that he never believed that there would be um, anything that could really help him. Right, but what was, what was so stunning to me was that I began to feel nascent hope, and it was it was a physical sensation. I I, I can't even describe it exactly. Um, I, I I was elated, and I was also carried away. I mean, I I was seeing my future changing in ways that it's not you know it's not going to change, but. Um, but it was really the first time since I was 25 years old that I felt hope. And we were confused too. And I got the call saying that there was going to be a conference at the Vatican on stem cells, and we were invited. And I went, the Vatican? What? They don't. They have not. They don't want to do that. And so we thought there was some. We were missing something, right. and we were. We didn't realize that. Um, we we only thought in terms of embryonic. So obviously the Vatican would not be supportive of that. But what they had discovered in research is that adult stem cells tend to be much more productive than embryonic and using your own cells best of all. So that's how little we knew when we went to the conference. It all started to make sense. So you get to the conference and, and in order to create this feeling of elation, Richard, that you're describing, you learn certain things. You have certain epiphanies. I, I think for a lot of folks who are suffering from chronic illnesses or have loved ones that are, it'd be nice to understand that process. And, in particular, highlight the difference between hope and expectations. Right. Um, well, I, I, first of all, I connected with one of the, I chaired the opening panel of the conference, and one of the people uh, on that panel was a New York neurologist, Saud Sadiq, and um, uh, we spent time with them, and uh, I told him that I was really interested in cell therapy, and he sort of looked at me and he said, well, come and see me when you get back to New York. And no exaggeration, 48 hours later, I was in his office. <laughs> I really was. 
And uh, he said, I didn't think you were going to come. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, because I've seen what you write about neurologists. <laughs> and he said, said, well. What had you written about neurologists? Pretty bad stuff. Bad. <laughs> Uh, well, but honest. They yeah. tend to be very cerebral. Yeah. His experience had been that they're a little bit distant and cold, and Sadiq is the opposite. He's beloved by his patients. Yeah, by his patients, really. Um, because he's very warm, and you don't see that often with neurologists. At least that had not been your experience. But what was the second part of the question? I forgot. <laughs> uh, why'd you go? If it's 48 hours later, you end up going to the office of someone who you historically had not been having high expectations from. What is it that got you to go, and what happened when you got there? Well, I mean, he, he was very um, straightforward. He didn't promise me anything. He didn't say anything about a trial, even though uh, I learned that he had a long-standing application into the FDA to do a trial. And, um, but I, I liked him, and I liked, he, my first exam took two hours. Now, when was the last time anybody spent two hours with a doctor? I mean, it was unheard of. And, um, and in, in, the, in the next couple of months, um, the FDA approved his trial. And he took me aside and he said, um, you're gonna be the first person I treat. And the reason he did that was that I present only on my right side, which he said is pretty unusual. And, um, and it, it's easier to quantify what's going on with a patient like that. So I did it, you know, and it's a long process of uh, giving endless quantities of blood you know, and taking all kinds of drugs um, to probably dull your uh, immune system, I don't know. And then there's the extracting the cells. Yeah, and, th and then there's a really interesting procedure where you lie on your back and a blood doctor screws something resembling a corkscrew <laughs> into your chest, and that didn't sound really good to me. No, they said it's gonna feel like you're- like Well, the nurse said, so I'm lying there and- uh, I'm filming it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, for, the, for my blog, and uh, Meredith says to the nurse, um, how, how much does this hurt? And she said, it doesn't really hurt. She said, it just feels like your chest is being crushed. <laughs> and I said, phew. <laughs> Did it hurt? No. Not really. It really didn't. See, but what I, what I was told was when they do the actual aspiration, you know, when they... Yeah, pull the marrow out. Pull, pull the marrow out, that's when it is supposed to hurt. And, uh, and when he said, okay, we're ready, and I said, ready for what? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, the aspiration. And he, he did it, and it didn't hurt. So what results did you get from this experimental therapy? Well, my, my results were less interesting than the other, some of the others. Two or three people got, literally got up out of wheelchairs. Um, 
But what happened to me was that I, one, a week or two after that first infusion, um, I had a pulmonary embolism that almost killed me. And unrelated to this. Uh, totally unrelated. Yeah. And uh, I was also diagnosed while I was in, in the ICU with another autoimmune disease, a form of psoriasis that's pretty vicious. And so my, my neurologist said, um, I think that probably worked against <laughs> the, the, what you could expect or hope for with the, uh, with the stem cells. Right, so let me go through this. You, you just mentioned two life-threatening issues. You had colon cancer. Twice. Twice, right? So the, the list gets longer, and yet you're sitting here explaining to us how you've done it. But the... The, the question that I like to push a little bit on is that difference between hope, and I would say real hope and false hope, or hope and expectation, which I touched on a tiny bit earlier, but you have real insights into it. And for many of us, we, 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 when someone tells you there's bad news, you try to do something oftentimes, just human instinct to cheer them up, and that sometimes begins to resemble false hope, even though sometimes it's okay just because you get people to move in any direction. Right. I think the expectation game is very dangerous. And I was just absolutely determined not to play it. I, I actually did play it in my head before any of this started. You know, when we were getting ready to go to the Vatican. Um, but I, I, I absolutely did not allow myself to expect any particular result because there's Everybody reacts differently. Everybody responds differently. And there's really no way to second guess what, what that therapy is going to do for you. And it was, it was tough because, you know, people with that or many, many other illnesses want so much to, to be normal. You know, I, I always shy away from the word normal um, because I'm not sure I really want to be normal, however that is, you know, defined. But I think people who are sick want to do things that other people can do that maybe we used to do. And it is very easy to, to slide into the belief that this is going to be, this is going to happen. Because I think it's inevitable that uh, it'll lead to disappointment. And I'm sort of a firm believer in fake it till you make it, including hope. And because y you can crawl into a hole very easily and go into a dark place. Um, and I've always felt like if I just believe it enough, it's not going to hurt me. And, and maybe something positive will happen. And the Vatican was proof to me that there was something out there. We all have it in us hope, but sometimes we, we push it down so deep that we can't reach it. Meredith, how did, how did this all affect the family? You're raising your three children. They, they figure it out a little bit before the cops do, maybe. I don't even know if that's true. Well, my, our oldest son, Ben, he was seven maybe at the time, and he was in bed. It was late at night and or late kid time. He had you know, seen me fall. He had seen Richard fall that day, and, he, and I was sitting with him, and kids, you know, in the dark, they say things. And he said, what's the matter with Daddy? And I said, everything's okay. You know, he's fine. He fell, but he's fine. We'll all talk about it tomorrow. And I went in 
to the bedroom with Richard and I said, we've got to tell these kids the truth in, in some way that they will understand and not be frightened. I mean, put it in terms that are uh, manageable for our kids were what at that point, like seven, five, and yeah. three. Um, and because they don't. Clearly Ben knows something's wrong. It's bothering him. Um, and so the next day we did talk about it. Right, and, we, and we put a name on it. But yeah. you know, what we really came to believe, and I, and I still believe, is that uh, if you want to have happy, secure kids, don't keep secrets like yeah. that. You know, they're the smartest ones in the house. Their radar is always on. And they hear things that we don't think that they hear. And what we've done over the years is talk very openly to them about it. We had a funny conversation uh, when I was diagnosed with cancer. We sat them down and- It was December. Yeah, it was December and I think it was snowing and, uh, and we pretty much told them the truth. And, um, and Gabe sort of raised his hand, our middle kid, our middle kid and he said, uh, I have two questions. He said, are you gonna die? And I said, nobody knows, but I don't think so. And, it, and he said, okay. Uh, and will we get our Hanukkah and Christmas present? <laughs> Which were the two smartest questions right. you could have <laughs> That's asked. right. Two for, yes, both yeah, presents. Yeah. Right. But he also, one time we were at school um, and we were at some school event and we were walking back to the car and out of nowhere, Gabe, who's the middle kid, said, I'm the one who's gonna get MS. Like, what? He said, why are you saying that? He said, because I'm the middle child and dad's a middle child. So clearly it's in their thoughts, you know, whether they're verbalizing it. And he didn't even say it in a scared way. He, it was almost matter of fact. Right, but, but it must be, and, and we don't really know this, Right. But it must be a terrible thing for kids to grow up with that hanging over their heads. They knew, they knew my family history, that I was the third generation in a direct line. Richard's dad's mother also had it. Right, and, um, and they, had, they had to live with that. I mean, we, we argue um, and believe that that they become more em empathic. Um, they learn to look around and see other people. You know, we've encouraged them, if they see other people or elderly people, to, to help in any way they can. And I think they, they do that, but I, I think it had to weigh heavy on them. But they also have always said um, that they, they had a great childhood. And this was part of it, but it didn't define them. And, and I think that came from Richard because he never let the MS define him. Yeah, let's, let's get to the, uh, the faith part of this title. Uh, you, you just brought that up, Meredith. One of the most provocative parts of this conference, you get to hear from people you normally wouldn't be in a conference with, like the, a cardinal or you know, you know some, <laughs> some senior member of the, of the Catholic faith or there was a rabbi there, was head of the LDS church, lots of different folks. But... I actually got to chair one of the panels with the religious leadership, and I was asking about the role of faith in the, in the healing process. 
And they said two things that caught my attention. One was that medicine has always been about healing. Faith is more about meaning. So let me start there, and then I have a follow-up question on what, what Meredith just brought up. How, did you, how, did, how has faith influenced your process? Um, not at all, really. I mean, I, I'm not a person of faith. Um, I, I wrote about faith because I think a lot of people think that hope and faith are tied, you know, tied together. And I, I sat down with um, clergy of virtually every major religion, and some people did tie them. You know, one uh, Jesuit said to me, a priest said to me that um, hope without faith is an empty hope. And I disagreed with him, but, but that's a very orthodox view, view. People, many religions are very doctrinal about, about hope. And Buddhism is the least. I mean, they don't even believe in hope. They, they think of hope sort of a waste of time. Um, but I, it, it was a, a real learning experience. Just to follow, they, they don't because they believe karma is the, is the driving factor. It's already decided. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean. Well, and I, 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 Richard points out in the book that he's an atheist, and but very interested in hearing from all different people, particularly people of faith, for the book. Um, and I respect that. I do believe in faith. Um, I'm not involved with organized religion, per se, but I think there is something greater than us. When I look to pray, to use that word, I go to nature, and that's where I find my, sort of my temple. But um, I did make sure when I was at the Vatican that I had a pair of rosary beads blessed by the Pope, just to cover all our bases. You know? she, she bought me I five <laughs> rosary beads, which I have used so tactfully. <laughs> oh, I know. I have to thank you. It's like for, gold. I never realized the importance. <laughs> yeah. There were some people I know who were having health issues, and I, it's, it was remarkable. Yeah. It was thoughtless of me not to have considered it. I appreciate it very much. Not, she bought me five. She bought Sanjay Gupta five. She bought Max. <laughs> well, I had been five. to a conference before with Richard where we were supposed to meet the Pope. He had just become Pope Francis. And at the last minute, he, he didn't do it because he didn't know enough about the conference. I respect that. Uh, but he made sure all the children, at all these conferences, there are always a certain number of ill children. And he made a point to, yeah. to seek them out. And it was an amazing experience to meet him. He really is incredible. If it's okay, since you know, I think we're close enough, I'm going to push you on the faith issue for a second. Uh, just because I've been thinking about it a lot of late. So uh, j just to play off of what Mario said, and then I'll get back to the deeper issue of faith. Uh, it, one, of the, one of the members of, the, of uh, whichever faith uh, I was talking to, and they were all very wise, they had a lot of overlap in their beliefs, said one of the beauties of faith is it helps people not be defined by their illness. Because you're, you're Richard Cohen, you're you know, Emmy Award-winning broadcaster, author, New York Times bestseller, you happen to have MS. Or you could be the guy with MS who has done all these other great things despite that. And that was an interesting way of, of addressing what I think a lot of people struggle with when they're feeling ill, which is they're more than the illness, even if it's a chronic illness. Thoughts on that? Well, I, my immediate thought is that uh, I think the, the, the saddest thing in the world to me 
is to meet people who see themselves, think of themselves as victims. Um, that I think they choose that over life, practically, or having a life. And, um, but you've, I mean, there are moments when you do feel like a victim. You know, you have to fight that as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, you're right. Uh, it. Um, but I, I tend to get very angry at myself, and why? Well, that's a good question. I think he gets frustrated. How much would it cost per hour? <laughs> I, I think I, I do get I, I get very frustrated by my limit limitations. Um, my kids are sick of hearing me um, speaking in very colorful language. Some at some distant point in the house, um, and I, I'm not angry at, at a person. Um, I mean, my father didn't choose, choose it. His mother didn't choose it. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And it's silly to get angry, I think. So let me, let me come back to this issue of faith. And I'd be curious, as we have opened this up in a few minutes to discussion, how you all think about this. But um, there were one of the people who's at the conference was Deepak Chopra. And... One thing I like about Deepak is that he seems to be able to point me to people who are really thoughtful about things I, I need to know more about. So one of the gentlemen at one of these evening events was a computer scientist. He happens to be a philosopher as well and had unique insights into this issue of faith. And we were talking about it, and there's an there's a explanation that you probably some of you have heard before, where the different faith disciplines are all pointing to the same thing. And we're busy looking at the person pointing and not really focused on what they're pointing at. So if you're pointing at the moon, that's, I don't know why, all my grandkids, Daphne has three now, they, that's the first word that seems to come up a lot, the moon. So all these, everyone's pointing at the moon because it's glorious and fantastic and unbelievable. And we're looking at the person pointing and not focusing on the deeper message. So whether it's nature or a, a, a belief that there's something else out there, or let's just use the word consciousness, which is probably the single biggest mystery of all the unaddressed remaining big questions, for me, it's number one. You could add you know, the fundamental element of the universe or something else like that, which is what Deepak would argue as well, but consciousness, what is it? And how do you make sense of all this? I think you probably spend a fair amount of time thinking about that when you're staying away from the what me, why me questions. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's illness is, um, arbitrary, um, life can be cruel. Um, I, don't, I don't struggle to make sense of it because I don't think there is sense to it. You know, it just, it just is. But, but broaden it beyond illness, consciousness, as a, as a very thoughtful individual who's had to struggle with explain, explaining stuff that's hard to get around. What is, this, what is consciousness? What, what, What's, what's out there? Well, I'm, I'm not sure this is going to address your question the way you intend, intend it. Um, I think that um, we live with a different reality, you know? And 
I think we see the world differently from the chronically healthy, you know, and, um, and it's a struggle. It's a, you know, we've talked a lot about the assault on our bodies. Um, there's a, a, an assault on our spirit and it, it wears it down. It, it can take over our consciousness. Um, and it's, it's very hard to stop that process. You know, it's very hard to be what we want to be because we're so busy fighting everybody off. And if it sounds like I'm exaggerating about fighting everybody off, I just don't think I am. I, I think uh, I think it's I think illness is a very solitary experience. You know, you can have a loving family, uh, people who who really care about you, and still we're in it we're in it alone. You know, and. Um, and we struggle in our own probably li limited capacities to, to make sense of it and to figure it out. And, and we don't know where we're going. I mean, you guys have an end game. You know, most people do. Um, I can't have an end game. I don't know, I don't know where I'm going to be physically, you know, uh, a year from now. Tomorrow. Or, or a decade from, from now. And I, I respect what Richard says, but I also believe that illness truly is a family affair. That it's more than the person with the, with the illness, it's everybody within that I orbit. I agree with him. You know, I, I, in the beginning of my career, I still operate, but I'm only operating one day a week now, but, I, but I, in the beginning I did the, all the mechanical hearts and a lot of the heart transplants at Columbia. And I was always struck by how people change when they got mechanical heart pumps. Because as you're describing, the thin veneer of life that we accept as reality starts to fade away because you don't have time for that stuff right now. <laughs> you gotta deal with the real things that are going down. And especially when you have, a, in that case, op those operations had a 50% mortality rate the people that I got to speak to were willing to share deep truths with me. And you say they don't have an end game, but they always expressed, at least for the time that they were in the hospital, a, a gratefulness for appreciating that. Because there are plenty of folks who are walking around like the walking dead who aren't reminded of how precious it is. And as T.S. Eliot said there, you know, they're spooning life in teaspoon by teaspoon rather than gulping it as you seem to have done because you didn't know it was going to go down. Right. Any redeeming elements to that experience? I don't know. And I, I think it would be self-serving to claim, to claim that. Um, I don't know what I would have. I, I sometimes wonder what I would be like if I didn't have the illness. But it was... 
it was so long ago that I, I was diagnosed. And, and part of me thinks that you think I'm a jerk now. Well, not as bad as you were, but. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. I think that uh, I, I, I'm almost, I almost recall, recoil a little bit thinking I might be, you know, still in television and might be firing people, you know, and enjoying it. I mean, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I don't think so. I don't think so either. <laughs> you wouldn't enjoy it anyway. Let's go to some of these questions. Uh, how are the kids handling the illness today? We talked a lot about them when they were younger, but as grown adults, other than hearing the expletives from the other side of the house, they call and they check in. Meredith, uh, what are they confiding with you? Um, nothing that they wouldn't share with Richard, ever. Um, I think they've all reacted to it differently. Um, our oldest had some real concerns because I, I don't remember if he tripped or he dropped something. And, you know, that immediately goes to the, into his head. Well, what if I'm next in line, you know? Um, and he did have an MRI just to put his, yeah. himself at you know, peace about that, and he's fine. Um, although anything could happen to any one of them. But they're very well-adjusted kids. I don't think they spend a lot of time no, I think thinking about right. it. Um, they're obviously concerned if Richard's not feeling well um, because they worry like any kid would worry. But sure. the same goes for me, too. Uh, how do you boost your immune system for a more favorable outcome? For what? How do you boost your immune system, not gin, for a more favorable outcome? Oh. Um, well, you're doing that diet now. Yeah, diet? but that's not. Okay. I, I don't. I don't know the answer. Well, well to what that. is the diet? What do you, what what diet? Well, I'm just curious. What I, the question you're well, asking? Well, I, I, I'm now gluten free, sugar free, um, taste free. Taste free. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to seem like you live longer. Dairy but, free. But you have been feeling better. So yeah, no, I have been feeling better. You have. Yeah. 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 Well, they, well, that's important. Explain that to us a little bit. Well, I I think that. Um, I think everybody should be on, I mean, we're all terrible eaters. I mean, I mean, Americans overeat and we eat terrible things. Um, and I, I was one, a member of that club too. Um, but I, I think that uh, cutting out that stuff from your diet um, is just really good for you. I, I can't ex explain it medically. You, you probably could. Well, I mean, I, I know why you might feel more energy or sleep better, but do you feel like your MS is any different now that you're gluten-free, sugar-free, taste-free? It's a little early. It's only been like a month. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I don't know. So but, there, but there are foods that, that are inflammatory, I guess, and so if you get rid of those, with the MS is the result of that. Oh, I get the conceptual part. Yeah. Completely. That's why I'm curious if in practice, when you have a real curmudgeon, you want to ask them these questions because I'll tell you the truth. Uh, if, I'd be curious if this make an impact. Listen, we learn a lot. Medicine learns in two ways. We learn because we do randomized trials and thousands of people. We believe that's really, really good, and you learn some stuff from that, but in fairness, the way you select patients is often biased. You know, the inherent challenges of doing that. Then you have the other way of learning, which is what historically medicine was about. We study one person really well. Most of our understanding of gastric dysfunction is because there was this hunter in Canada who shot himself in the stomach and got a big fistula, a big hole, and the doctors could see inside his stomach because he survived. And we learned a lot about how you digest food from that one person. Huh. So we can learn a lot, Richard, from what you go through. If it makes you feel better, then if I don't have MS, am I thinking doing it? 
So, <laughs> right, so exactly. take notes. Uh, do you think the cancer was connected to your MS? No, not at all. Just random. Yeah. Well, after they did, just didn't get it all the first time, so. Right, I think uh, th their margins didn't quite. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the second surgery was much more dramatic. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about freezing umbilical, umbilical cord uh, samples to preserve stem cells that might be of benefit later in life for the, all the women who are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant? Thoughts on that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about yeah. it, but why not? What do you think? I think you ought to freeze your stem cells, but I'll tell you, there's, there are banks that will freeze it very inexpensively if you're willing to donate those stem cells. So I think it's, we ought to have a national bank anyway to save them for yourself, but in the meantime, if someone needs them desperately, might not be your child, but some, someone's child needs them, or they work for adults as well. These are powerful cells. They can be used for many purposes. Uh, I, I have a lifetime supply of stem cells. You do? No, I literally have a lifetime supply. Where'd you get them from? From my bone marrow. Oh, for, oh, I'm sorry. I was yeah. thinking about umbilical stem cells. Yes, your own stem cells. That's right. You could donate some to the audience. I will. <laughs> um, you know, the last question from the audience I'll share with you. It said, you've, you've addressed it a bit, but I want to give you one more chance at it. You have a philosophy about life. And I, I ask this with a lot of humbleness because you've been through more in 70 years than most of us will face, although you've outlived many people. Hmm. And... They come and they go, uh, these illnesses that you're suffering with, but you keep pretty steady. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I would only say that um, I'm not defined by my illnesses. I never have been. Um, you've got to figure out who you are. You've got to figure out what you believe. You've got to figure out what's important to you um, and go for it. You know, as I said, don't be a victim. That, that's digging yourself a grave prematurely. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that you've got to believe in possibility. And I really do believe in possibility. And... Um, there are no guarantees for any of us, um, but, you know, we can't see around the corner. Well, none of us can. I've truly enjoyed spending an hour with you. Thank you very much Thank for gracing the stage. So, R Richard and Meredith are going, it's downstairs, right? Just down that little hallway so. to sign books. He will give you a sample of his eyebrow hair <laughs> if you get a book. Save it. With that DNA, you can then collect stem cells down the road. <laughs> Thank you for all being Thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.